Well, it's my privilege to preach this morning, and we are continuing with our series in 1 Peter, looking at living in difficult times, and Peter's talking about how we can cope with the challenges that the world throws against us in the times that we live in, because even in those times they were suffering from persecution, probably in a more intense way than most of us are, and Peter spends some time writing to the churches and telling them how to live well in difficult times. And we've got to 1 Peter 4, verses 17 to 19 this morning, if you'd like to follow in your Bibles, but I'll read it to you, and then we can just have a look at a few points from there. It says, for it is a time for judgment to begin with God's household, and, it begins with, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I'm going to read that again. Listen carefully. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And in our talks leading up to this one, and especially over the last while, Anne's been sharing with us the fact that as Christians, suffering does come into our lives. The kind of teaching that says to people, become a Christian and nothing else will ever go wrong in your life is, is not an accurate teaching. It's not a helpful teaching because we do have challenges that come into our lives. And as Peter was saying to the church when he, uh, in the preceding verses to this, he was talking along the same topic in the extent that he said, that there is some suffering that we have because we've been persecuted for the name of the Lord. There are things that come into our life that are challenges because we've chosen to serve Jesus. People will either overtly or subtly bring condemnation or challenge into our lives because they object to the fact that we stand for Jesus. But there are also sometimes challenges in our life because we bring them in ourselves. And there's sometimes challenges that we can't always explain. And Peter was saying... It's a joy and a privilege and a pleasure, although it doesn't feel like it, to actually suffer challenge for the sake of Jesus Christ. But we shouldn't suffer because of our ignorance and because of our disobedience. Now today, Peter talks about, well, I want to raise four points about what he's talking about. The first one is that people of God sometimes face purifying judgment. Now that sounds quite heavy. Judgment, we don't like the word judgment. Once we have become Christians, we are in right standing with God. And we as people are righteous before him. He sees us as spotlessly unblemished, but our lives on earth are still, our actions are subject to judgment. They're subject to the consequences of what we do. And I think it's always important when we living in the age that we are where we know the grace of God and the fact that we are forgiven through Jesus Christ and therefore the wrath of God is turned away from us, it's not a bad thing to look in the Old Testament to see what the character and nature of God is towards willful, willful sinfulness. And so let's have a look at the book of Amos, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Hear this, hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Now, I say again, this is in a time before Jesus had died for our sins, but this is the nature of God. If you are close to me, I will not overlook the sins in your life. They still bother me. They must still be out of your life. 
God shows us tremendous grace, but God will never become tolerant of sin. He will never say sin is okay. And so in this Old Testament prophet, and this is in the time when Israel was going further and further off the rails, and it was just before or a while before the time that the Babylonian invasion came, and Israel was scattered, and the, and the consequences of their behavior came home to them. And he says, hear this word, people of Israel, the word of the Lord has spoken against you. And this is against Israel, his own people, those who've chosen him. Against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families on earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. There seems to be an implication that the punishment for the unjust is deferred until later, but it's permanent. But there's a judgment on our behavior, and there's a desire for us to change our bad behavior on an ongoing basis in our life. And I've written this down. God expects more from us, so allow some cleansing. He's not vindictive, but he does desire that we are purified for service. The dross gets burnt away, and the gold remains. And Ant has spoken about that, that when these trials come into our lives, it burns away the stuff that shouldn't be there, and the gold remains. The thing that we need to realize is this. It's going to hurt. We sometimes think this will be an entirely theoretical operation and done in some kind of spiritual anesthetic, but when God begins to take the dross out of our life, it sometimes hurts, especially if we like the dross that he's taking out of our lives. And I've written down here the, the, the simple thing that physical exercise causes discomfort. If it doesn't, you're doing it wrong. If we want to get stronger and fitter physically, we're going to do exercise that's going to cause us to perspire and have pain and have fatigue. If we don't, we're doing it wrong. If you go to the gym and you come out smelling like a daisy, not a, a mark on your, on your makeup and, and everything looking nicely ironed and, and, and complete, then you haven't done it right. The guys that do the best in the gym come out looking like they've been hit by a bus. Sweaty and dirty and wrinkled and crinkled and, and they, they have pushed themselves forward. Uh, there's a, another example I want to go to the Old Testament to have a look at and it's quite challenging. It's in Ezekiel chapter 9 verses 4 to 6. Again, an example showing God's abhorrence of willful sin. And if you go to the previous chapter, Ezekiel says he was sitting one day with the elders of Israel when God gives him a vision, and he takes him into Jerusalem, and he reveals to him all the evil that people are doing at that time. Idol worship, desecration of the temple, and it's truly evil. And then it says this, a group of angels are called out, and one of them is called forward, and God says this to him in verse 4. And said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. He says, those who have rejected these things, who grieve about them, who lament about them, put a mark on their forehead. And as I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in the front of the temple. Now this is a vision, but it's a pretty brutal vision. There is a terrible place of being an enemy of God. The word of God says to us that it's not his will that any should perish, but all should have eternal life. And we get to choose. And the people that he's responding to here are people who have willfully chosen. People of Israel who know what they're supposed to do have chosen to rebel against him, who have brought abominations into his temple, who have worshipped other gods in the temple. And it shows the abhorrence that God has for that kind of behavior. And it is a refining. He says, go and take out, if you take my nation and I want to go forward to them, we need to take out those and that part of the nation that is holding it back. Now, I want to reassure you, God's not doing that in this day and age. All of his sin, 
all of our sin, all of the anger that he has about that sin has been placed on Jesus Christ. And therefore we walk in grace. But that sin is still abhorrent to God. And when we choose to bring that into our life, he will sometimes allow trials to come to burn out that dross. He will allow things to come into our life that will take those things out. And it's going to hurt. And when that happens, we should not think that God loves us no longer or that God has rejected us because there's a nice encouragement in the same sense of this because a little bit later in the Old Testament, in fact, right at the end of the Old Testament, in anticipation of Jesus' coming, Malachi writes this, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring him righteousness. Again, he says there's going to be a purifying taking place that will start with those that are supposed to be closest to him. The Levites were the tribe out of whom the priests came and out of whom the leadership came. And he says, start with them. But if you see, he says, then I will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. He doesn't say, I'm doing this to wipe out the nation. He says, I'm doing this because I want to have a refined service. I want to have, the intention is to refine and not to destroy. And it starts with the Levites who are designated to lead and to teach the worship of the, of the nation. And Peter here, in these writings that we had in, in, in 1 Peter He's not talking about final judgment. He's not saying that we as God's people are subject to a final destroying judgment. We are subject to regular judgment of our actions and refining of those actions on a day-to-day basis. Now, I said at the beginning that sometimes we suffer persecution and we suffer because of the fact that we serve God. And sometimes we suffer because of our behavior. It's good to know the difference. Because when we are going through trials... The best way to end those trials is to put right what needs to be put right, to get rid of those things that shouldn't be there. And so the first point that I believe Peter's making is that God's people are sometimes facing purifying judgment. The second point is that the enemies of God experience judgment that is final and without remedy. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, it says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. I spoke previously, and I seem to pick up these my turn, I pick up these scriptures every time. I don't know what it is, but we, we sometimes, and I'm one of the people who says we don't want to preach a gospel in which we focus on the punishment and try and scare people into heaven. I'd rather preach the love and the grace of God and the fact that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. But we would be negligent if we didn't acknowledge the fact that there is a punishment for those who reject God. And it's not a refining punishment that we're talking about what Peter says is there for the church. It's a permanent and complete and terrible judgment, and that's what's spoken about in Romans, a final and complete judgment in which people will suffer for eternity because of their sins. Now, what should we do about that as the people of God? Should we rejoice and say, get them, God? Or should we say, there's something terrible waiting for these people. I have an enormous responsibility to do something about it. Now, I want to just press pause on my actual intended talk for this morning and just touch on something that's big in my heart at the moment. I really believe in evangelism 
through everybody. It's great to have crusades. It's great to have services. It's great to call people into church and to preach the gospel to them. But you go out into the world every week as people who know Jesus Christ. You work next to people who don't know Jesus. You shop with people who don't know Jesus. You live next door to people who don't know Jesus. You are in sports clubs, in schools, in places of of gathering, in various places with people who don't know Jesus, and you can make a difference. Now, I'm not saying that every one of us should carry a soapbox with us and wherever we go, put it down, get on the top and start preaching a sermon. But we should be ready in season and out to share the love of God and the truth of God. And I want to challenge you. If somebody gave you an opening, without you having a crusade, without having it organized for you, but if somebody gave you an opening today, this afternoon, to tell them about Jesus Christ, what would you say? Have you thought about what you would say? Every one of you who knows Jesus and has him as Lord and Savior has a testimony. You can start with that. But what would they need to know? I want to encourage you to seek in God's word guidance and to to be diligent, to be ready in season now to share the testimony that you have and to share God's word and to tell people what they need. It doesn't have to be an amazing sermon. But, you know, the, the, the coronavirus spread through the country without any crusades. There were some parties that people just about made corona crusades, but it went because people were contagious and they came into contact with other people in the course of life. And the disease spread rapidly through the country. That's how I want to see evangelism working. Not just formal meetings where people come or formal outreaches that are organized, although those things are all of value. But we should have an outreach every Sunday when you leave these doors. I have a friend who in his church that he was in at one stage had over the doorway as you went out, it said, you are now entering a place of ministry. We need to be infectious when we leave. And some of you have a personality that will accost people in lifts and say, do you know Jesus? And some of you don't. And that's okay, because some people don't want to be accosted in lifts and some don't mind. But everybody, are you ready I tell the story often because it was a heartbreaking story. I was in a meeting with with a group of of home group leaders, not in this church and a long time ago, so I'm not trying to lead you towards people and say it was them. But I was in a meeting with a group of home group leaders and somebody said, you know, something happened to me at work today. This guy came up to me at work and he said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, can you tell me about Jesus? He said, I told him to come to church next Sunday. Broke my heart. Broke my heart. What would you do if it was you? What would you say? It's worth thinking about that. You know, we, we, have, we have first aid kits. Some of you might have them in your car just for the basics that you could need to help somebody if something happened that you could jump on the problem and help them and give them the basic need. Do you have a, a spiritual first aid kit in your pocket? Do you have something that you can share and will share? If you don't, maybe we should get together sometime and have a chat and see if we can help equip each other. Maybe something we can think of going forward. And I've gone off my topic now, but I'm coming back. I said that because it is true that the enemies of God experience judgment that is final and without remedy. And it says, what he said was, if you look at Peter's uh, talking right in the beginning, he says, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Let's help them. Let's make that our task every day. Let's help these people who don't know, who 
still walk away from God. The third point, so the first one was that we all will face purifying judgment sometimes. The second point was that the judgment for those who don't know God is final and, and complete and eternal. The third point is that God's chastening lets the Christian understand that they have not yet arrived and that there is a long way to go and a lot to learn. I'm indebted to Michael Eaton for some of his writing when he comments on this. When it says that if it's hard for the righteous, how will it be for others? It's talking about people who are already Christians because Michael Eaton makes the following statement, and I think it's quite interesting. He says, Christian, the Christian is saved, he's being saved, and he will be saved. And he expounds on that by saying the following, he is saved, he or she is justified, born again, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, and the righteousness of God is working in their lives. We're going to heaven, we're saved. Phew. I'm glad about that, I don't want to go to the other place. And when I'm saved, when I give my life to Christ, I'm saved. He is being saved. God is progressively, day by day, delivering from the power of sin in his life. There's an ongoing process of being saved. And that, you know, the first part, being born again, that's all God. He's done everything. All we say is, yes, please, oh, that's for me. And everything that needs to be done has been done by Jesus Christ. The being saved part, the life-changing part, that requires collaboration and cooperation from us. It requires that we begin to look at those parts of our life that need to be refined and we begin to advocate those in our own life and not just wait for God to, in what could be quite a painful way, remove them from our lives, but that we begin to offer those things up. And then he shall be saved. He is saved. He shall be saved. God will raise him from the dead and reward him for living for Jesus. His righteousness will be vindicated. Everyone will hear of him being honored by Jesus. There's that to look forward to and that's all God again. But while we're here, we've got something to do with it. And this purifying that, that Peter talks about, he says, that's difficult for us. How much more difficult for those who don't know him? And then finally, the fourth point is, it, is that Peter encourages suffering believers in persistent faith. He says in verse 19, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And I've written in big, bold letters here, make sure you're in God's will and then stand. When I come into a time of challenge, I need to examine my life and say, am I doing something to promote this? Is this something I brought on myself? Is this my stupidity or my arrogance? This is not persecution, this is me. Fix it. If I know I'm in God's will, then all I have to do is stand. Stand on his word, stand on his promises and begin to trust him to take us through it and the examples here in James chapter 5 verses 10 and 11 it says brothers and sisters as an example of patience in the face of suffering take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord as you know we count bless as blessed those who have persevered you have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about the Lord is full of compassion and mercy now Job existed in a time even before the covenant of Abraham. And he lands up in a time of terrible suffering because God allows him to be tested by the devil. He allows him to actually wreak havoc in his life. And the persistence of Job is that in all that time, he chooses not to accept at any point that God is unrighteous. He says very vehemently, I don't understand. His friends come along and they try and offer him explanations and he says he doesn't accept those explanations. He cannot identify anything that he's done to earn what he's been going through. He doesn't want it. At one stage, he even says to God, he'd rather be 
killed and die. His wife says to him, curse God and die, and he refuses to do that. He stands through this terrible persecution that he goes through, and he comes out the other side. And you know, in the way through it, he says something that I've never noticed before until I was preparing for the service. Job says something that I'd, I'd missed in the past. This is in a time before the covenant with Abraham, in a time long before Jesus. And Job, in his suffering, when his friends are coming against him and telling him that he needs to give up, he says this, Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of man, he pleads with God, as one pleads for a friend. Even at that time, Job was aware of the fact that when he's going through the suffering, he has an advocate in heaven, that there is someone on his side, and he stands faithfully waiting for that to come through, and in the end, God restores his life. Terrible season in his life, but God restores it because of his faithful standing. And therefore, we need to stand also on the promise in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Make sure you're in God's will and then stand. I think I'm going to stop right there. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you care about how we live. Thank you that you care about those around us that don't know you and that you're preparing us to be of service. Lord, we acknowledge that sometimes that hurts. We acknowledge that sometimes we walk away from that. But we ask you, Lord, in your wisdom to lead us and guide us and to help us to stand firmly through times of trials so we come out refined and pure, instruments able to be used in your hands. Lord, prepare our hearts also to share with others at any time or any place. Just give us the words to say as we care for a world that is facing final judgment and not just refining. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.